Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a paper by Neil Johnston of University College Dublin. His paper was entitled From the Humble Desires to the Act of Settlement, Restoration Politics, 1660 to 1662. Studies of Restoration Ireland are understandably dominated by analysis of the land settlement. The long-term importance of this political process demands a reassessment of the first two years of Restoration Ireland, and this paper will re-examine the several rounds of negotiations and debates that took place before a final bill uh, received the Royal Assent in July 1662. Beginning with the presentation of the humble desires in June 1660 and finishing with a discussion of the Act of Settlement, the paper will show how the Protestant interest uh, pursued their aims of securing land, parliament and religion. But this was a complicated process and at several points their goals caused a serious backlash that saw a need for them to rein in their efforts. Charles II's interest in the process was stronger than has been suggested elsewhere and along with several of his senior councillors at Whitehall he acted as sort of a buffer uh, to some of the more aggressive Protestant proposals. Catholic efforts uh, to have the King recognise and enforce the, uh, the 1649 Articles of Peace will also form part of the paper. So the General Convention of Ireland adjourned itself at the end of May 1660, having ensured that Catholics were restricted within Ireland while struggling to gain an audience with the King in England. This left the way clear for a Protestant delegation to travel to London to lobby uh, the King in an attempt to secure their uh, material gains of the 1640s and the 1650s. They were acutely aware that only an Irish Parliament could secure legal title for these lands. An essential element of this was the need to minimise Catholic restoration so a future Parliament would not overturn the land settlement or unsettlement. It was this concise but clear agenda that formed the basis of Protestant thinking on securing uh, a land settlement between 1660 and 1662. So what I'm going to do with the paper is I'm going to look at the humble desires first, then I'm going to briefly consider the Gracious Declaration uh, the expanded version of the Gracious Declaration, which is, became known as the Instructions in February 61, and then I look at the process of drafting the Bill of Settlement between 61 and 62, and briefly, very briefly, I'll try and sum up uh, the Act of Settlement. So, the humble desires. On the 18th of June 1660, delegates acting for the General Convention presented the King with their proposals for how they wanted the Irish Government and Parliament to be reformed. These proposals, known contemporaneously as the Humble Desires, were both confrontational and yet quite supplicant. They were uh, led by Roger Boyle, uh, Lord Brawl, uh, and Sir Maurice Eustace, who would soon be appointed Lord's Justice in Ireland. They gave the King, the king a clear reminder that it was they who had influenced his restoration in Ireland while warning the King that it was the Protestant interest alone that would main, maintain stability in Ireland. This could only be ensured if army arrears were uh, paid, if the lands uh, if their lands were secured by rejecting a Catholic resurgence and if a Parliament was quickly called in Ireland. While recognising the King's right to summon and disband Parliament, uh, there was a clear legislative agenda on display. The Irish Parliament alone would decide upon uh, benefices for the Church, on the payment of military arrears and on the regulation and collection of taxes. It was here that they made their intentions for the land settlement very clear to the King. Firstly, they asked that all ordinances and declarations that had been issued by the uh, General Convention they should become law, thereby retaining holdover Catholics, that an act of indemnity for Irish Protestants be introduced immediately 
as had been uh, done in England, alongside an act of attainder that would revoke all rights uh, claimed by Irish Catholics who were to be universally deemed rebels. Building upon this, they proposed that an act be passed for securing the estates of adventurers and soldiers and others and the transplanted Irish in Connacht and Clare in such a manner and with such ex uh, exceptions and limitations as the said Parliament would think fit. Moreover, care was to be taken, and I quote, for the just and speedy satisfaction of all such adventurers, their heirs and assigns, who had not been satisfied pursuant to the Adventurers Acts of 1642 and 1643. Other elements were practical in nature, but displayed the, uh, the time lag between the presentation in June and the consideration at the English Privy Council uh, in mid-August. They had asked for a chief governor and a new seal uh, to be uh, created for Ireland, as well as a request for the superior courts to be populated with suitable candidates, uh, all of which was well underway by mid-August. They also made convoluted religious proposals where they asked, uh, and I quote, that the Church of Ireland be resettled in uh, doctrine, discipline and worship, as it was during Charles I's reign, according to the laws then and now in force. So, most likely as a nod uh, to the Presbyterian element of the delegation, they added uh, that this be done uh, with such liberty to tender consciences um, as were contained within the Declaration of Breed of the 4th of April uh, while, and I quote again, uh, godly, learned, orthodox and ordained ministers um, of the gospel be settled uh, there as speedily as may be possible in a parochial way. So it's a convoluted request uh, containing both Presbyterian and Anglican inclinations, neither of which would have satisfied uh, either part of the group, uh, but it reflected the fluctuating nature of Irish Protestant intentions at this point. Having already appointed the bishops to fill the uh, vacancies the previous week, the king was at this point free to disregard uh, this request, although his response uh, was conciliatory and vague. In general, his response to most of the proposals was simply uh, non-committal, choosing instead to defer most decisions to uh, the Lord Deputy for Ireland at the time, uh, Roberts, who was not particularly interested in Ireland at the time. Having clearly set out their position, the next task for the Protestants was to ensure the King saw that their agenda was the safest and quickest means of securing Ireland. Charles had allowed Catholics to report uh, the humble desires in September, which served to reinforce the Protestant interests' uh, intent to get the King to call a Parliament as quickly as possible. The Catholics had argued that the King's first order of business uh, should be to begin uh, to implement the 1649 Articles of Peace signed between the Confederates and Ormond in early 1649, which would have ensured uh, that lands were returned to Catholics where they, where they would have had the right to worship openly and sit in Parliament. The Catholics also called for an act of indemnity uh, for themselves as well as an act of attainder, uh, which would have consigned Protestants in Ireland to losing their lands and properties uh, because of their collaboration with the, with the Cromwellians. So this process raised tensions and the Protestants pushed the King to call a Protestant-only Parliament. Recognising, however, that this would not happen immediately, as the government was really only still being put in place at this time uh, with the appointment of uh, the three Lords Justices uh, in October, um, the newly uh, named Earl of Orrery, um, uh, the Earl of Madrath, and Sir Maurice Eustace. And it became obvious that they needed to ensure the King did not grant away further tracts of land. So the newly appointed Lord Justice, uh, Roger Earl of Orrery, he pressed at the English Privy Council uh, pressed this to the English Privy Council and was instructed to draft a declaration outlining the King's intentions for Ireland. It was this declaration that became the Gracious Declaration. 
signed on the 30th of November 1660. So this was the foundation of the land settlement. Now, Orrery drafted it, and it was the most equitable document written for the land settlement, very much reflecting the king's wishes. And it's the preamble which is particularly noteworthy for its providential tone and reference uh, to God's hand in the king's restoration. It then immediately acknowledges the 1649 Articles of Peace, but also the complicated uh, political situation the land settlement was raising. Although Charles was not happy that many Catholics had acquiesced uh, with the Commonwealth and protectorate governments in Ireland, he chose to uphold the, active, uh, the Articles of Peace anyway. He was especially interested in rewarding those Catholics who had served in exile, but that did not mean that those Protestants who had been constant in their support would lose out. And by way of response to the humble desires, clearly stated that the terms upon which lands had been awarded under the Adventurers Act of 1643 and the Act of Settlement 1652 were invalid, but he would recognise them anyway. Soldiers' and officers' land holdings would need to be examined, as the previous government had been uh, particularly incompetent at accurately recording land holdings, and patience was requested in this instance uh, while records from the 1650s were examined. Careers in lieu of military service would also be honoured, and it's clear that it was clear in stating that Catholics would not be denied just because they were Catholics, and each case would need to be looked, upon, looked at in an individual basis. Thus the order, as it is on the screen, that the other priority was, firstly, Protestants and innocent Catholics with no lands uh, in Connacht or Clare uh, would be first considered. Secondly, innocent Catholics with lands in Connacht or Clare but who would uh, adhere to the Articles of Peace and serve the King in exile, while those to be removed from such lands would be relocated first, and those who supported the army in Ireland against the rebels. It also made provision for a parliament to be called once the land, uh, stating that once the land settlement was resolved, an act of indemnity would be passed. So that's the, the gracious declaration in a nutshell. Now, one of the final clauses of the gracious declaration noted that an a list of expanded instructions should be created for a commission that would adjudicate on land claims in Ireland. And it was with these instructions, which were prepared over the winter of 1660, finalised in February 61, uh, where the Protestant interest resisted or altogether contradicted some of the King's intentions to incorporate Catholics into the land settlement. Now, the instructions were an expanded version of the Gracious Declaration, providing detailed directions for its implementation, which were intended to resolve many of the ambiguities contained in the original document. The first clause named 36 commissioners who were empowered to adjudicate on land claims, as well as to create... Uh, and populate corporations, and encourage the erection of churches and attract ministers. The commissioners were all prominent Presbyterian, uh, Protestant politicians, pardon me, many of whom uh, were members of the newly appointed Irish Privy Council or served in various positions in the judicial, legislative and executive branches of government. In some detail, the instructions stated how claims of innocence of involvement in the wars of the 1640s should be adjudicated upon, how deficiencies in soldiers and adventurers' landholdings would be reconciled, how army debt was to be managed and repaid, as well as clarifying the size of land holdings that should be granted to successful claimants. Although overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly advantageous towards those who had invested money in the 1640s to pay for the war in Ireland, the instructions were also favourable towards officers um, and soldiers who had fought for Charles I prior to 1649, as well as those who were rewarded for service in the 1650s with land grants. Alongside these, there was another essential element to the instructions. The paucity of precise land records available to the government was addressed, 
because the instructions clearly sought to uncover false or misleading declarations of land ownership from the beneficiaries of the Cromwellian settlement. This was essential to the resolution of the land settlement general and was to occupy the Irish Attorney General, Sir William Donville, and his colleagues within the Office of the Surveyor General um, from late 1660. By providing detailed criteria for those who would be considered innocent of involvement in the wars of the 1640s, the instructions were intended to quickly remove uncertainties that the place of Catholics within the settlement was creating. The parameters determining their involvement in the conflict were severe. Understandably, restoration would not be granted to those Catholics who were adjudged to have been actively involved in the wars of the 1640s on the side of the Catholic Confederacy or had undertaken any type of duties or activities against the King's interests. In a departure, however, from the Gracious Declaration, the instructions moved to assign guilt on the basis of geographical location of estates rather than upon actual proof um, against... Oh, sorry. actual proof of acting against the king's interests, pardon me. In essence, residency within the formerly, areas formerly controlled by the Confederate Army was deemed a treasonous act. The thinking behind this was simple. As there was real difficulty in proving the guilt of such a large proportion of the population, justification was needed for the transfer of land holdings that had taken place. One of the Lord's Justices, the Earl of Mount Rath, bluntly stated this some months later when he argued that Catholics who had lived in areas controlled by the Confederacy had contributed to rebellion or claimed indemnity under the 1649 Articles of Peace should not have claims of innocence entertained under any circumstances. For him, the very fact that they urged the King to recognise the Articles of Peace, which indemnified Catholics, was traitorous. And he stated, those who had lived in areas formerly under the control of the Confederacy um, should not be rewarded, and this was the only visible means to discover who was guilty of treason, and I quote, as there was no way of proving particular acts of rebellion against most of them, though they were never as guilty. Now, the first Court of Claims began to sit uh, in late March 1661, although how many decisions are indeed, what they decided uh, is unclear. What is certain is the response that garnered for the veteran Catholic lawyer, Patrick Darcy, argued against the validity of altering land ownership as neither the Gracious Declaration nor the instructions had statutory authority to establish legal title for lands. The Court was then quickly closed, and from this point in March it became obvious that the impending Irish Parliament would need to secure the Protestant settlement from attack. Now, some weeks before Parliament was convened in May 1661, the Irish Lords Justices and the Privy Council summoned a meeting of senior politicians to hear proposals for the land settlement. The essence of this was similar to the instructions, and when presented to the Commons in May, they were broadly accepted, although the Commons was intent on pursuing the Dublin Ordinance. The Dublin Ordinance was an addendum to the 1642 Adventurers Act to further encourage investment for the ongoing wars in Ireland. It was a simple proposal whereby a double return on the investment would be paid out upon the successful conclusion of the war. So thus, if someone had invested, say, £1,200 upon a subsequent investment of £300, a quantity of land worth £3,000 would be allotted according to the rates set out in each particular province. So if money had been invested in Ulster or Connacht, the potential was for a very large proportion of land uh, would be granted. The Irish government sent the proposals to the King in June 1661 and received his response in July. Now, he was broadly happy, making little comment about the restrictive terms for the Catholic restoration, but he had no intention to acknowledge the Dublin Ordinance payments. He summoned delegates from both camps to London to hear their response to the draft bill, and this took place in uh, September and October 1661. As it happened the previous year, the debates ended in deadlock, 
Such was the impasse that by late October the King sought fit to alter government by removing the three Lords Justice and replacing them with the Duke of Ormond as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Under Ormond's direction, debates continued sporadically over the winter of 61-62, although by March the King disregarded Catholic resistance to the, the bill and dismissed them from court. The Bill of Settlement was then quickly finalised without any Catholic input and sent to Ireland for approval by the Parliament. By the time the Act of Settlement was passed and given the Royal Assent at the end of July, it was already considered unfinished. It confirmed and expanded the Gracious Declaration as well as the instructions, but was immediately recognised as being unfit for purpose. By guaranteeing to recognise the terms of the Gracious Declaration and ensuring that uh, innocent Catholics could be restored, yet enforcing the harsh terms of the instructions, it proved inadequate for many Protestants, several of whom claimed that the only benefit uh, was to them was being mentioned therein. Although there is n uh, not adequate time here to discuss the Bill in real detail, I'll briefly just mention some of its more pertinent points. Now, as opposed to the preamble of the Gracious Declaration, which had referred to God's providential hand in the Restoration, the preamble of the Act of Settlement revoked any sense of providential involvement and claimed that the Restoration was engineered by the Protestant interest while expounding upon uh, the vast expense of blood and treasure spent by the English interest in Ireland. This set the tone for the Act, and it's obvious that it was only reluctantly passed in Ireland. It repeated... Uh, the precedents established in the Gracious Declaration where Protestants and innocent Catholics were to be given priority over adventurers and soldiers. Significantly, and what would be regarded as a real fill-up for the Catholics, it established another commission or a court of claims uh, with independent commissioners uh, whose decisions would, were to be considered valid in law. Now, it's a, it's a very long act uh, incorporating the Gracious Declaration and the 62 instructions, and then it adds another 160 instructions which are essentially a series of private bills um, granting lands to the people, numerous of ones which finish with, this is to be uh, implemented regardless if it disagrees with other sections of the Act. But the problem is it bounces back and forth. So in some cases, very senior people have been granted the same pieces of land, never mind those others who were uh, scrabbling around trying to get lands back. So I'll just, I'll just finish up on just on time. The fact that the Act of Settlement gave leeway for Catholic restoration and established the Court of Claims saw the royalist influence of London in the beginnings <coughs> of a weakening of the new Protestant interest in Ireland. Clearly signifies the shift in political power between those who had claimed involvement in the restoration and the King's later appointments, which were epitomised uh, by Ormond. Uh, the Earl of Orrery neatly encapsulated the political situation regarding Catholics and the new Protestants who had arrived in Ireland after 1650 when he wrote, there's a bit of a tangle twister, it was juster not to put out those who brought the king in than to put in those who put him out. <laughs> so, the instructions reflected this, I think. Um, but it was the Act of Settlement's inability to live up to this idea that would cause such tension in Ireland. Of course, problems immediately emerged and the Act of Settlement further exposed the lack of knowledge that the government had um, about how much land was available, who owned it, um, and how much more they owned than they should. And this was really the crux of the problem. It had hoped to resolve this dirt in knowledge by empowering several commissioners to investigate um, the land settlement and stipulating punitive terms for those uh, who falsified claims. But once the Court of Claims uh, began to sit in October 1662 and public hearings commenced in January 1663, the tensions created by both the perceived weaknesses in the Act uh, Settlement of the Court of Claims saw a new wave of tensions spill over in Ireland. And it's, it's at that point I'll stop.